Our scripture reading this morning is the resurrection story in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen As he said, come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this morning, we are considering Jesus. We are looking at the story of his uh, resurrection, uh, as we consider his, his life, his death, his burials, we looked at on Good Friday, and now uh, his resurrection. You know, to consider something, to consider something is to think really carefully about it, carefully, uh, usually before making some kind of decision. And we do this every day, countless times, don't we? Uh, Do I eat Cheerios or shredded wheat, right? We consider. Do I want to wear the blue shirt or the the green shirt today? Do I pass this person or do I stay where I am on the road? Where do I want to go for dinner? What time should I go to bed? Should I brush my teeth? Hopefully you don't consider that one. You just do it, right? Do you see what I'm saying? We consider all kinds of things every day, all day long. We're making considerations. I think you get my point. We consider a lot of things as we make decisions. But no consideration, no consideration like the resurrection of Jesus has this much magnitude. Nothing in your life. Jesus' resurrection, you know, it isn't something that we take out of the drawer and, and, and dust off once a year on Easter. He either resurrected or he didn't. And the Apostle Paul lets us know if he didn't, if it didn't happen, we are in big trouble. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he said this, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if he did resurrect, this changes everything. See, this is really something to consider. 
Whether you're here for the first time and you've never really considered Jesus, or you're a lifelong considerer, lover, worshiper, trusting in Jesus, it's something for each and every one of us to consider. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then what we are doing here this morning would be an absolutely big waste of time. Apart from maybe a, uh, a nice opportunity to, to get out and see some people, apart from that, So this morning, amidst all the noise of your life, amidst all the noise of this last year, we want to narrow in and consider Jesus. Jesus, according to the account written down by Matthew, who was one of his followers, one of his early first followers. What does it mean for our fears, your hopes, and our salvation when we consider that the place where he lay in his tomb was empty on that resurrection morning. Did it happen? And what does it mean if it did? There's a couple questions we're going to look at this morning. So let's jump right in. We're going to look at four considerations this morning from our text to answer these questions. Hopefully you've got an outline there to look at. Uh, Your text open to Matthew 28. Let's look at the first consideration. Consider... The validity of the resurrection as told in real time, real places, with real people. You know, each of the four Gospels, they reach a pinnacle in a careful recording of the events surrounding and leading up to Jesus' death and resurrection. All four of the Gospels. And they do so, I believe, because they are attempting to record a historical setting, and events that actually took place in real time, in real places, with real people. Let's look at real time and place first. Matthew gives us in this in verse 1. Look at just verse 1 again. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. So this event took place, Matthew is saying, after the Sabbath early on a Sunday morning, an exact historical moment he's giving us. Not just some general sense of, oh, this kind of happened. No, on the Sabbath, early morning, this is the setting. An exact historical moment. And consider verse 2 says it was the time of that big earthquake. Remember, just in case you couldn't remember which Sunday I'm talking about, you remember the big earthquake, right? He's giving us details there. You, You felt that, I know, you remember it. I want you to know which exact Sunday that was. And then he goes on to say, they went to the tomb of Jesus, this one, the exact place. So he gives us this setting intentionally, the exact place. You you remember this Jesus. This is Jesus who was publicly executed in front of many people. So well known, the Bible says, that you'd have to be like hiding under a rock to not have heard what was going on in Jerusalem on this week and weekend. You might look at this and say, okay, well, we look at this and it seems like, it seems like Matthew is trying to write down history. Okay, maybe he's giving us a real place, time, details, and setting, but anyone can write down a story, can't they? Anyone can write down a story. And if these gospels were written down, oh, many years after, 
decades and decades and decades. You know what? Things change. How can we even be certain that this is the right story? The largest game of telephone was recorded on March 1st, 2017 by Guinness Book of World Records. They do weird things in Guinness Book, don't they? Who would have thought? Who would, have, would you have taken place in this? Anybody? Largest game? A couple of you, yeah? 1,792 people lined up at this park. You know what the game is. You start at the beginning of the line. You give a phrase to somebody, and they have one opportunity to, to whisper it to the person next to them, and you can only do it once, and you know, you can start with a phrase that's like, I like eating ice cream on hot days, and it can turn into, please run over the dog with mayonnaise. You know, it's just, this is the way it goes. Some people try to claim this with the Gospels. They say, you know, they were written down 50, 60, 100 years later, maybe, they say. You know, that's just not so. That's actually not the truth. There's more widespread agreement now, now, today, that Matthew wrote within 30 years of Jesus' life. And that the Apostle Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives this great description of the, the resurrection. That he wrote within 15 years of Jesus' life. So what does that mean? That means the gospel we're reading the times, the places, the, the details, the events, there were eyewitnesses still alive at that time. You could go and ask them. You could go and see them. You could go and say, you, you know, I, I read what, you know, what Matthew wrote, you know, that day of the earthquake, that, that day, the, that Easter morning, that Sunday. How hard would it be to find people who knew and ask? Imagine if I said 15 years ago, uh, which is 2006, imagine if I told you, hey, in 2006, you know what I did? I walked across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope. Imagine if I told you that. How hard would, you, would it be for you? 15 years ago now, which is Paul with his writings after Jesus' death. How hard would it be for you to go find people who knew me and ask them and figure out whether or not I had actually walked on a tightrope across the Grand Canyon? How many of you think I actually did that? I did, I really, no, I didn't. But you could find people. You could find people. It wouldn't be hard at all. Both my parents are still living. I have a couple brothers. I was married at that time, actually, so you really could find out. <laughs> it wouldn't be hard at all. Now, imagine if I, we wrote that down 200 years after it had happened. How much harder would it be to verify if we said 200 years ago, this person walked across the Grand Canyon on a tightrope? Matthew writes this story with such details because he knows, if you were the original reader, you could go and talk to Mary Magdalene. You could go and talk to the other Mary. It's written in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. I love what Peter Williams says. There's a quote from him in a book where he talks about how many people saw him. He says this. He says, talking about all Jesus' appearances, the resurrected Jesus is recorded as appearing in Judea and Galilee, in town, in countryside, indoors, outdoors, in the morning and the evening, by prior appointment, without prior appointment, close and distant, by a lake, to groups of men and groups of women, to individuals, to groups of 500, standing, walking, eating, and always talking. 
Many are explicitly close-up encounters, he goes on, involving conversations. It's hard to imagine the pattern of appearances recorded in the Gospels and the early Christian letters without there having been multiple individuals who claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead. These stories would have been refuted. Hundreds of people are claimed to have seen him after he died. Hundreds of people saw him because there actually was an empty tomb. There's good reason for you to believe. This isn't blind faith. You know, you can't prove it the same way you can prove something in a science lab and with test tubes. But you know what? You can't actually prove any historical fact that way. Not even the fact that Abraham Lincoln was our president. You can't prove any historical fact that way. And yet, there are very good proofs to say that it happened. Let's talk about the eyewitnesses. We talked about the time and place. Did you know that all four of the Gospels record Jesus appearing first to women? And women only. This is incredible. Because at this time in history, a woman's testimony was not even permitted as admissible evidence in a courtroom. Do you know that? I mean, women were not even considered full citizens at this time. I know, we think that that's crazy. We hear that and we go, it's crazy. That's just the way it was, though. It's just the way things were at that time. If you were trying to create a legend, if you knew it was a lie, this would not be the way you would write it down. You would not choose women to be the first eyewitnesses because their, their evidence was inadmissible. It would be men, and not only men, it would be important men. That is who you would choose if you were fabricating a story. So why did they write it this way then? Why did they record it with women seeing Jesus first in all four Gospels? They did it that way because that's actually how it happened. And they wanted to be truthful. And they were recording it as it happened. Mary and, and the women, they, they did report it back. This actually happened. They did bow down and worship him. They did see him rise again. But you know what else this means? If you feel like an outcast... If you feel like you're less than others, if you sense that you're just the type of person who doesn't have all the things together, you feel like nobody loves you, guess what? God brought his message first to people just like you. Just like you. You're in good company with these women at the tomb. And Jesus has a special place in his heart for the least of these, the lowly, the humble, the less than accomplished, the neglected, the overlooked, if that's you today. He's got a special place in his heart for you, as he did for these women. Not only that, the lowliest, the most humble in our church means he's got a mission for you too. He's got work for you to do. He commissions the women. Do you see that there? He, he says, you get to go be the ones. You get to be the ones to share. You get to share the good news of my resurrection, Mary and Mary. That's a mighty responsibility that he gives to the, the least possible people we would think, to these two women. What might God have for you? Don't ever underestimate what he might do in your life. Whether how accomplished you are, 
or how lowly you feel and humble. What might he have for you? So we're looking at these four considerations from this text. And our first was the validity of the resurrection as told in real time and places and people. Here's our second. Let's consider God at work in the empty tomb. God at work in the empty tomb. So the women arrive early on Sunday morning at dawn and they're confronted by an angel. A messenger from God is what angels are, who is sitting upon the stone on the tomb. It's incredible. It's an incredible setting. Imagine seeing this. And of course, as is common in the Bible, upon seeing an angelic being, the response is fear, a trembling, this, 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 this other, otherworldly being, transcendent and bright. And the guards, it says, they, they fall down like dead men. They're so terrified. And more than likely, they run off before the women get there. It's probably what took place. But to the women, women, he says this. Look at verse 5 with me. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus, who is crucified. He's not here. He's risen. As he said, Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly, tell his disciples, He's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. The, the, the words from the angel are, to these women are full of um, consider-like synonyms. We're, taught, we're considering Jesus today. They're full of this kind of language. He tells them, uh, consider. I know it's Jesus you seek. Come see. Come see. Consider. Look at the empty tomb. He's not there. Uh, behold, another consider-like word. Behold, you will see him. Consider him in person. See, see, he says, consider. I've told you now. I've told you. Think about it. Consider it. Matthew's telling us by the presence of the angel and by the supernatural earthquake that took place that this is God at work. Those are his his signs there for us, the things that tip us off, that God is at work here. God's work, not human's work, emptied the tomb. God's work. I mean, think about that for a minute. Let's consider this. What do you do with an empty tomb? I mean personally now. What do you do with that fact that it was claimed by hundreds and hundreds of people and there were guards there? The disciples couldn't steal him away. And a few verses down, we even see in the same passage the guards were paid money to lie and tell the spread the rumor that his disciples did steal them. It's recorded. Here's the thing. These were not ignorant, toothless, desert people. We might think they were. Who were just gullible and would believe anything. That's how we've we've handled the empty tomb in our day and age. We sort of rationalize it yeah, you know, ignorant people out there, uneducated, had no clue, gullible. They'll believe anything. You know what C.S. Lewis calls that? Chronological snobbery. You know what he means by that? That our day and age, we are the ones who figured it out. 
We are the ones who finally arrived. We are so progressive that we've evolved to such a level that we now understand that those people, those people, right, they were the ignorant ones. They had no clue. They were toothless, desert, uneducated people. The idea is that we as contemporary people have progressed so much. We've got this, this amazing IQ that would be much higher than theirs that day. You know, it can only be a people that live long ago that would fall for such a lie. That's absolutely ridiculous. That view is absolutely ridiculous. They were normal people just like you and I. Two things quickly here. Number one, verse 17, we didn't read it, but it says down in the passage, even after some saw him alive, guess what? They were still doubting. They were still doubting even after they saw him. Why? Because they had reasons to doubt and be skeptical. And maybe they were different than ours, but it was just as inconceivable to them as it would be to us. We've got to see that. These are, just, these are real humans. The Jewish culture, if you understand first century culture, had some doctrine of humanity resurrecting in a general sense at the end of the age, at the end of all history. But in the middle of history, one person who called himself the Son of God to raise from the dead with a new type of body that could walk through walls and yet still eat and talk? No. No way. Inconceivable. Absolutely. And yet here we are. Second thing quickly, the first century Jewish culture would not have been able to make something like this up. It just wouldn't be conceivable. They'd be the last people on the planet to create a story like this. And actually, this is the event they had the most trouble believing about Jesus. Why is that? They had reservations and doubts too, just like maybe you have today, just like maybe you had in your life. And yet they're claiming he raised. So what must have happened? Those doubts must have been satisfied with seeing the risen man who died. And their doubts might be different than ours, different things, but they, 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 weren't just, they weren't any less or more gullible than we are, so they must have had those doubts satisfied. What other way than actually seeing him alive could have done that? They would not have created this. Well, we're looking, as we said, at these four different considerations today. Hopefully they're helping you. I think they're giving you some thoughts and some questions, and maybe if you're someone who's following Christ, reassuring you today. Our first one was real-time places and people and eyewitnesses. Second was the empty tomb. Here's the third of four. Consider the change the resurrection brings to real lives. Consider the change the resurrection brings to real lives. The absolute transformation of the lives of the, the women and the disciples is a clear proof that something happened. The women in the story approached the tomb, and what was their, their attitude and their emotions when they approached the tomb? Deep sadness and loss. They were mourning the death of their dear friend and teacher, Jesus. And yet they run from the tomb with a joy that's indestructible and a fearful awe at what they saw, an empty tomb. 
And they run right into Jesus, Matthew makes it sound like, on the way to tell the other disciples. And you saw their response there. They bowed down, grab his feet, and worship. What would cause you to bow down and grab someone's feet and offer them worship? I mean, we, we struggle with just giving compliments sometimes to others. We struggle when our siblings get a bigger bowl of ice cream. We struggle when someone gets a better grade than us. We struggle when we find out the salary of someone we work with is higher than us. We struggle when someone else in the room gets the big laugh that we wanted to get. We struggle when we see someone in better shape on a day we're feeling crummy. We struggle when we're proved wrong. Yet here these women bow down and worship, the story says. Who alone deserves worship? God. What could better prove that Jesus has risen and he was God in flesh than seeing him alive again as they grab his feet and worship him? This was no hallucination. This was no apparition. They didn't eat a bad egg for breakfast. This is a real thing. Real flesh and blood women saw real flesh and blood Jesus. Good Jewish women don't worship anyone but God, in other words. They wouldn't do that. They were good Jewish women. And yet here they are doing that with Jesus. They bow down, they grab his feet, and they worship him. It's not just these women, but Peter, the one who denied him just a few weeks later, is standing with courage in front of thousands preaching his name. What would change him like that other than seeing the resurrected Christ? James and John, who were known as the sons of thunder, become the apostles of love. Jesus, at the end of this chapter, says to them, how about this one? Matthew 28, hey, go change the world with this message. Matthew 28 says, go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. And this group of 11 uneducated fishermen just initiated into this new thing with Jesus say, okay, we'll go do it. Against all opposition, against Roman occupation, how is this possible unless the resurrection's true? How are you going to explain it? Which means anything is possible. Anything. The changed lives are an incredible testimony for you and I to consider today. If this was a lie, if this was a hoax, why would his followers be transformed into living lives of sacrificial service with many of them to die for this? alone and isolated, taking this message to different parts of the world. They wouldn't. Consider it. Would you? Unless it was true? Unless you saw him again? They wouldn't. It's our third consideration of the four, the transformed lives. 
Our first was real-time places and peoples. Our second was the empty tomb. Our third, as I just said, were the transformed lives. Here's our fourth, considering that Jesus is with us to the end. And here's where we'll answer that second question. Okay, let's say this did happen. And I've tried to make a case for it today that it did. What difference should that make? In my life? For me? For you? How should this change your life? This is incredible. I hope to bring this in and really make this come alive for us, even as Jesus is. First with the women. Let's talk about them. This is the morning of his resurrection, remember, and Matthew makes it sound like as they, Mary and Mary run away from the tomb to tell the disciples that they almost smack it at Jesus there. You kind of get that idea. Behold, it says, Jesus met them. Consider, look, behold. And he says to them, good morning. Good morning. He's concerned for them. He, he appears to them and he inquires, greetings. How are you? Good morning. So good to see you, in other words. Good morning. His first concern as he greets these women is for them. He's the one, he's the one on the cross, remember, right? Not them. He's the one betrayed, remember? Not them. And he says, good morning, ladies. It's so good to see you. His first concern is for the scattered, frightened disciples. So here we have Jesus, the creator of the world, the friend of the disciples, their teacher. They've lived together for three years. They ate together. They've traveled together. They've been through danger together. They saw miracles together. And when Jesus needed him at the, uh, at the most at the end of his life, when the teacher needed friends, when all others turned on him, what did they do? They did the very same thing. They did the very same thing. They turned their back on him. Peter denies him. Judas betrays him. The others flee and run. They abandon him at his greatest hour of need. They walk away. They turn their backs on him. Now, if this was a Hollywood movie, I'm so glad it's not, but if this was a Hollywood movie, when Jesus was raised from the dead, what would he do? He would come back for revenge, wouldn't he? He would come back, he would take no prisoners, he would wipe the floor with them. And actually, if he did that, we wouldn't really be surprised, would we? Yeah, I mean, look what they did to him. Or, you know, at least Jesus get angry with them, at least chastise them, at least make them pay in some way, Jesus. But what does he say to Mary? Do not be afraid. And go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, the home base, and there they will see me. There's a million thoughts we could have about these words right there. <laughs> There's something so touching. The very first thing he calls them is brothers. The weak the betraying, the faltering disciples. It's like Joseph in Genesis, if you know that story. 
who confronted his brothers, who sold him into slavery, who turned their backs on him when they finally realized that he'd been in this place of power and authority many years later, what did he do? He said to him, brothers, do not fear. Jesus knows the disciples were more afraid of men than of God. He knows they betrayed him royally, seriously, and yet they're still his brothers in this moment. Think about that. Here he stands, the, you know, the, the, uh, the superhero conqueror over death and sin and Satan. He's just reversed the course of humanity for those who trust him, and he thinks about them. My brothers, Mary, go tell them. The ones who didn't treat him like a brother. In fact, they didn't even treat him as good as a stepbrother. <laughs> he says to them, Tell him we're still family. Tell him we're still family. He knows their weakness and he doesn't cast them off, even though he had every right to. And here's what that means for you. If the disciples weren't cast off, nobody will be who comes to him in true faith. Nobody will be cast off. He never forgets his people is what that means. And he will be with us to the end. He'll be with you to the end if you're trusting him. And it also means he's here with us now, those who have faith do you see this? Consider this. All the other religions of the world, every, every single other religion of the world has followers who admire their leader, respect their leader, want to follow their leader, but guess what? They can't be with their leader. And they never will be with them. They've all died. Only Jesus can be with his people because only Jesus has resurrected from the dead. Only Jesus is the true brother you need. Oh, and does he tell them, does he ever tell them when he sees them, he says this to them. When he sees them, he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Do you know what he's saying there now? Essentially, he's saying, I'm in charge of history now. I'm in charge of history. All authority has been given to me. And I will sit at the right hand of God, uh, kind of like the idea of a, a prime minister who sits at the right hand of a king who rules over in place of that king. He's saying to them, I will have sovereign control over your life. Here's what some people call in this moment the cross-resurrection principle. The cross-resurrection principle. Here's what it is. It's that, disciples, you abandoned me. The world threw hatred at me. Satan brought evil against me. I was killed. Cross. And yet in my resurrection even greater salvation is available. In what we thought was the worst moment of history, which it was, the cross, the resurrection principle says, even now, because of that, I have all authority, Jesus says. It's the cross, resurrection, 
principle. Disciples are probably looking at him on the cross saying, how could anything good come out of this? Is there anything in your life you're looking at that way right now? Anything. How could anything good come from this? Maybe not today. Maybe it's over the last few years. An illness you didn't expect. The loss of a loved one you didn't expect. Current cultural climate. If you can't see how anything good can come out of it, you know what you've forgotten? You have forgotten the cross-resurrection principle. You've lost it. Or maybe you've never had it. That from the greatest evil act in the world came the greatest salvation and presence of our Savior with us. And he's the one in control. And he can be with you through faith in his death death and resurrection until the end of the age, he says. Now, that doesn't mean that today things are just going to work out perfect. Or next week, or even 10 years, or actually even in your entire life. But, but it does mean at the end of history as we know it, for those who are trusting Christ, all evil will be swallowed up. Swallowed. All suffering will be undone. All of it. And done away with. If you believe that he's risen and he's with you until the end of time. What kind of change would that bring if you believed that? Really believed that? Changes everything. The gospel changes everything. I think I saw a sign that said that somewhere. If you came in the gathering place, you know what I'm talking about. To know your sins are paid for, past present, future, to know that the king of this world is with you and that he calls you brother or sister? It would change every relationship, every tragedy, every loss, every gain even, everything. Maybe you have this. Maybe you're growing in this. Or maybe you don't. And you hear this today and you say, I want this. What do you do? You repent. You acknowledge that you've been trying to live life your own way. And you seek forgiveness in Jesus. If that's the the thought of your heart today, if that's something stirring in you today even, you need to express that to the Lord in some kind of prayer. They're not magic words if you were to pray something. And I've got even something popping up on the screen. Just some, or some railroad tracks, something to run on if you were thinking, like, how would I respond to this? Like I said, these aren't magic words. These words don't save you. Only Christ saves. But if this would be the true, honest expression of your heart today, there's some assurance for you that Christ's resurrection was yours, that his death was yours. could sound something like this. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the life of Jesus I want to come to him today, seeing my need of him for the very first time. My heart's desire is to be a brother, to be a sister of the one who rose from the dead after dying for my sin. I acknowledge I've lived as one who's given 
no value to what Jesus has done. Help me trust in him. Help me believe that he paid for my sin and truly rose again. Not just as a nice story, but in real time and place and purpose in front of real people in repentance and faith, I give you my life now. That's what it would sound like. That's what it would look like. Consider Jesus. Pray with me. Christ, so much in this for us today. So much hope, not only for those that might come to you today for the first time, but what a hopeful thing to hear for lifelong followers that we don't believe in blind faith. There are real, thoughtful reasons to believe that you truly rose. And if you truly rose, that changes everything. Because it means, Heavenly Father, you've accepted the payment for sin. Help each and every one of us consider Jesus today in a new way. Amen.